Well, I am so excited. This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, because I am here in our offices with the New York State Woman of Distinction for the 46th Senate District, and that is Betty Filkins. Welcome, Betty. Thank you. I'm excited um, to be here. I just was having a chat with Betty, and she said so many fascinating things. I said, Marcello, you've got to turn the microphone right on. First of all, tell us how you found out you were receiving this honor. Senator Amador called me and at work, and um, he's telling me that I won this, and I'm like, what? I don't understand. And he tells me again, and I said, is this a joke? <laughs> but I'm thinking to myself, it sounds like Senator Amador. <laughs> and he goes, no, it's not a joke. And I said, how did I even get elected? How did that happen? He said, well, some your friends sent something in, and we uh, took it, and we nominated, we pick out all the nominees, and we pick one person, and we picked you. And I was, I'm honored, and now she is um, in a booklet with a, a woman from each Senate district and was part of a special ceremony to honor her. And she was telling me a bit about the other women from across the state. If you could just sort of reprise your description of who you were sitting next to and what your conversations were. Well, I sat um, in a group of, of all these ladies. And the lady to my left, I introduced myself and I asked her where she was from. She was from Utica. And I said, oh, we deal a lot with Utica. I work at Albany Med. And uh, we're teaching the doctors there how to do TAVR, where you put in an aortic valve in the heart without doing open heart surgery on very sick people. Oh, she says, that's interesting. Do you know Gustalago? I go, uh, that would be my boss. <laughs> He's the guy teaching all these people. <laughs> so we had a nice conversation. And then I introduced myself to the lady on my right, who was Michelle from Manhattan. And um, she said, how's your day going? And I said, oh, my day is going fantastic. Because my sister just got the results that day of her PET scan. And um, Betty's sister is well known to our readers because we've done stories about her battle against cancer. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, she is stage four metastatic cancer. It started in her breast and it spread to her hip. And in December, she found out that it was in her hip. And they put her on a new medicine starting in January and upped her hormone medicine, a hormone blocker. And when the, with this last PET scan, it showed that the, uh, the cancer site itself had reduced in size from 10 centimeters to 7 centimeters and it was all broken up like glass, which means the medicine's working. We had talked to Dr. Gibbons about radiation oncology, and she said, let's see what this does first before we do radiation. So this means she won't have to go to radiation, but she'll be on eye brands the rest of her life, which is $13,000 for three weeks worth once a month. But her insurance covers it all, but then she'll hit the donut hole. And we've done fundraisers in the past to cover that donut hole. Between the three fundraisers, we've raised over $10,000. And this is just such great news because, as Betty has told us earlier about her sister and we've had in our stories, she had been told by her doctor to get her end-of-life papers in order, to work on her bucket list, so it's yeah. kind of a miracle. It is a miracle. Yeah, it that's is. great. We'll just keep fighting it. Yeah. Which Dr. Gibbons said to her, don't give up because yeah. we'll just chase it down. That's just Great. Well, I have before me, Betty, being very well prepared, came with a seven-page resume. <laughs> and 
I was just going to hit these main topics that uh, Senator Amador had outlined in his nomination, but it is stunning the number of community activities she's been part of, the kinds of things she's done in her work, and also listed there is she's bowled a perfect 300 game. <laughs> so she is a very diverse woman. I'm almost afraid to start in not knowing where, but in front of Betty is a very substantial book. Usually um, local histories are like little pamphlets. This is hardbound. It's huge. It's uh, an inch thick, and it's People Made It Happen Here, the history of the town of Rensselaerville from 1788 to 1950. And she was part of that research. Can you tell us a little about what went into doing that book? Well, this is all done before computers. So we went to the state library and uh, got a lot of information there. We went week after week after week. Um, at that time, this was before I worked at Albany Med, I worked in the resorts in the summer, and we have the whole winter off. So in the winter, we started working with Henrietta Ryder, who was a fantastic person. And there was like 10 of us, and we would take a field trip into the museum, get all this, or to the library, and get all this information, bring it back, dissect it, decide how we were going to put it. And then we would go out and interview the older citizens of the town, knowing that someday their stories would be gone. And two of the people were my grandfather, Charles Peck, and my great-grandfather, Clayton Peck. And they told, you know, we would sit for hours with these people, and they would tell us their stories and what they remembered. Well, can you tell us some stories about your grandfather and about who he was and um, how he... My grandfather worked for Callahan, what's now Callahan's. It was the quarry in uh, South Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And um, he lived on a farm in Rensselaerville. That's where he was born. And... Um, he felt that his life wasn't very exciting at all, but we, we found it very interesting. You know how they used to take all their produce to the market in Albany, and it would take them like two days to get everything, and they would stay all night in Clarksville, where there was a, a, an inn, mm -hmm. and then go on in and then spend the whole day at the market, then come back to Clarksville, stay all night there on, with horse and buggy, and then back to Rensselaerville. And he told us stories of when they were kids and some of the pranks they used to pull on each other, probably because they didn't have TV or anything. They were constantly thinking of things to do, yeah. scaring each other and stuff. Funny, funny stories. Yeah, well... Betty also told me and showed me a picture because she did so much research through cemeteries and would become frustrated when you couldn't really find out a lot. She has designed and had made for herself and her husband a gravestone. I've never seen anything like it. It's got two hearts, which is lovely, but the interesting thing is on the back side. Tell us what's on the back side. The back side is our family history, um, our ancestors. I just went down his line, direct line of the Filkinses and the women that they married. And then on my side, all the pecks and the people that they married, as well as our children and our grandchildren. Our great-grandchildren are on there, and I have four of them, because there's, I hope there'll be more of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also you're kind of running out of room. That's right. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but what a great idea. So future generations researching their family history will bless you because when they come across that gravestone, right. they'll have it all right there. And you said you were kind of inspired by a gravestone you came across. We, we came across a gravestone down in Greenville, and all it says is the poor man's name... The year was born, year he died, and it says, I told you I was sick. 
and yeah. you thought you're like sad. What happened? You know yeah. that somebody, the mother, the father, somebody had to make that stone for him. But how sad is that? Oh God, it's really sad. Yeah. Well, so I'm just looking where to land in ta- on this resume. One of the things that was highlighted by um, Senator Amador in making this nomination was that Betty is a lifetime member of the Westerlo Fire Company. And in 1978, and think about that, 1978, that mm-hmm. was like the second wave of feminism after the first wave that got us the right to vote. Way back then, she was the first female firefighter. Were you the only female firefighter at that time? Oh, yeah, and for a long time. Yeah, so what inspired you to do that and how? Well, I belonged to the rescue squad, and we would go on calls, and there wouldn't be enough firemen during the day. And I thought, this is crazy. I can do that. My mother called me Charlie's boy, Betty, because I would work on the farm with my dad. I had an older (laughs) brother who was deaf, but he went to St. Mary's School for the Deaf in Buffalo, so Mm -hmm. he wasn't home a lot. Mm -hmm. And then my younger sister basically stayed in the house with my mom, Margaret. And then my youngest sister, Ruth, with the cancer, and my youngest brother um, were like, 12 and 15 years younger than I am. So I was Charlie's boy, Betty. I hunted with him. I worked the farm. I drove the tractors and uh, worked with him constantly. And yet you're so feminine, if I can describe (laughs) her. She's got a pink shirt on, very curly hair. Thanks. Very, So So um, I thought, I can fight fire. I can do that. So back then, to join, all you do is, all you had to do is pay your $2. So I go to a meeting, and I purposely sat right in the front row. And I, they called roll call. Our chief at that time was uh, Chief Dutton. And when they got done calling roll call, they said, is there anyone we missed? And I raised my hand, and they said, does anybody have any objections to Betty joining the fire company? So I just swiveled around in my seat, and I looked at everybody in the eye, and nobody, everybody sat on their hands. Nobody said a word. <laughs> well, so once you became a member, did you feel like you had to especially prove yourself? Oh, yeah. So tell us a little about that. So I took a lot of the courses on, on fighting fires. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of them was over in Medusa, and none of the guys from my company was there, but uh, there was this nice guy, big, tall guy. He was a farmer over in Medusa. And when we, we learned how to lay the hose on the truck and then leave two loops so you can put your arms through it and take it down across the fire field because a lot of times... There isn't a lot of people. There, we don't have hydrants, and you'd have to get that hose out there to get to the fire. So we did all that, and the instructor, Mr. Bennett, said, who wants to go first? And nobody said anything, so I said, I'll go first. Well, I heard these snickers in the background. I thought to myself, if it breaks my back, I will take this hose down across that field. <laughs> and I did. I took it down across the field, laid it all out put it back on the truck, and he went, he goes, who wants to go next? Well, this big, tall farmer says, I'll, I'll go. So he leaped off the truck, and there he hung. Everybody laughed. He goes, how the hell did she do that? <laughs> Sheer determination. Wow. <laughs> and then there was other courses, too, that I took. And then I remember one fire, a huge fire down on uh, Copeland, uh, Coal Hill. And uh, we, we were fighting fire with Byrne and Eastburn. And when we got all done and I took off my turnout gear, I heard this guy say, I told you that was a woman. And I turned around and I said, did it make any difference? He said, oh, no, 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 did not make any difference. I just knew that it was a woman somehow. 
<laughs> so when you're in your turnout gear, you're so well swaddled, yeah. people can't see your shape is no. the idea. Right. Oh my. So did you feel like you constantly had to reprove yourself or did after a while people just come to accept? After a while they came to accept it. And then it was like a good, I don't know, maybe at least 10 years before another woman joined. And when she did, she wanted to change everything. Oh, you can't say fireman, you got to say fire person. Oh, you can't do that, you got to say this. Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. And when she wasn't at a meeting, I said to the guys, I told you not to let women join. I told you it'd be a problem, didn't I? <laughs> oh, dear. So how many are there now in the department? Women? Um, there's not a lot. There's about four that actually fight fires, interior firefighters. Um, they come and go. They come and go. Some of them, it's not for them. I remember some people on the rescue squad. We would go take a, a call, and people would be severely injured drop them off at the hospital, and some of them would cry all the way back home, and I'd say to them, this isn't for you. You need to find something else to do. There's other things you can do. You don't want to, you know, why suffer like that? Well, so how do you manage? I don't know. Not to, no. That's what my mother said. How can you do that? Yeah. I want to help people. I got started um, when I went, my Pam was little, and she's now 50. So we went into James Way in Catskill, which was long And Pam long. is your daughter. Pam is my daughter okay. and my mom. And as we walked in, this lady fell in front of us and died, and I didn't know what to do. Was she had a heart attack? I believe she probably yeah. had a heart attack. And by the time the rescue squad got there, it was too late uh, because it probably took them a good 10 minutes, and then you're, you're the point of no return. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, oh, no, 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 no. i got to learn how to do this. i gotta, I got to do something. I can't just watch people die. So I took a CPR course, and then I took first aid, and then I ended up taking CPR trainer, and then I trained the CPR instructors. I worked a lot with Mr. Snyder down in uh, Medusa, and that's how I ended up winning the American Heart Association uh, Award for Volunteer of the Year one year, um, because I got... I jumped in with two feet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I in this resume, there are many, many, many awards. It seems like anything you do, you put your whole self in. How do you have any of yourself left? <laughs> well, that's why it says on my stone, now I can sleep. Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, one of the things that maybe is too sad to talk about, I don't know, but that's mentioned in your nomination is that your younger brother was permanently crippled by a drunk driver in 1989. And I guess what now I realize is typical for you, that led to you taking action. Tell us about about that. I joined, um, well, first of all, it's, it's horrible to see them and then there's like nothing you can do. And when people commit crimes, you have no input to that. So then you start looking, I start looking for an outlet. And I joined Remove Intoxicated Drivers, which also helped me learn the laws of the land and what we can do to help fight against drunk driving. So then I started uh, speaking for them a lot at the Gilderland Town Court. They would have us come in and you bring your slides and you would show what happened. He was in the hospital for six months, came home in a hospital bed. And when he said to the doctor, and my husband and I and my dad built a ramp for him to get in and out of his house from the wheelchair, when they, he said to them, when can I start walking again? Oh, you're, you'll never walk again. He broke everything. They broke everything from his waist down, everything. The gas pedal went through his foot. 
um, I just, actually, I correct that. The brake went through his foot because he hit the brake so hard. This guy passed a car on Route 30 going north, and when he came back onto the pavement, he came straight across and hit Steve Broadside, which rolled his truck. Took him three hours to get him out of the truck because the pedal went right straight through his foot. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't use heat to cut that pedal because you'll burn his foot. So, and when you try to saw it, you're jarring his foot. So it took him a long time to get him out of there, and... Um, and he eventually went to Albany Med, which I'm, I think it's a blessing he did because he uh, had a lot of pulmonary emboli, which happens when you break the big bones, and it goes to your lungs and filters itself, and then you can't breathe. And uh, they pulled him through. I, oh, God bless him, they pulled him through. And um, so then when I speak, I show his pictures when he was in ICU. and all. I mean, he had like 18 surgeries to repair all this. And I show these pictures, but I always go, please let me talk first, because these poor people that have lost their children to drunk drivers, I just start crying. So I'm like, let me go first, because I don't want to cry. And so I can tell my story, and then I listen to their poor stories. So these people you're talking to, is this for the panels that drunk drivers have to go and attend in order to learn how horrible it is? Yes. So they they see there's consequences. Yeah. They they necessarily have not done anything. They haven't hit anybody. Luckily, they just got a ticket. Right. But to say, don't drink again. I drink, but I don't drive. Yeah. You know, you got to learn that. Right. Have a designated driver. Yeah. I have a, a wristband that says, not designated driver. <laughs> <laughs> so you also have a great sense of humor. Um, well, tell me a little about more on this book, because um, is there a part of it that you feel is the most important for people to know about the history, or is it something that people should, you know, read through and get the idea? I see there are lots and lots of pictures. In yeah. It. And I, I think that's a great way to tell a story because so often buildings disappear, but not in Rensselaerville as much as other places. There are, there are a lot of really restored buildings Oh, and they're beautiful, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. they are. Yep. It's a historic town, and they try to yeah. preserve them. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, I, there's a lot. I don't even know where to start. Like, the grist mill there was a very important part. A lot of people would bring their stuff there. And uh, is this the mill that's still standing? Still standing there. Visit? Yep. Oh, yeah. For a while, our meetings were held there, but then we moved to Mrs. Rice's house uh, because it was so cold. There. I mean, sorry, Mrs. Ryder's house. Because it was so cold in the mill in the wintertime, so we moved there to her house. And uh, once a week, we would meet there and go over all the um, stuff that we had gathered, the mm. pictures. A lot of the pictures we got from people in the town, they would say, oh, listen, I have a picture of Uncle Bill. Let me give you that. And, you know, we'd get it copied, bring it back to them. It's not as, not, wasn't as easy back then as it is now. Yeah. Um, and try to put them in the stories where they belong. Um, kids on the, the, you know, Britain store. Um, this is, you, I know that this is, uh, voice, but uh, this one picture—that's where my uh, husband grew up, grew up, right there at the and house where, next to the store in Rensselaerville. This is where the post office was for a while. This was Britain's Soda Fountain. Okay. So if you come in at eighty-five to the end, right, and if you look to the right, there's a big white house right there. Yes. That's the store that's, that was Britain's Fountain. Okay. And they had a wonderful soda fountain. To go in and, you know, they'd, they'd make the soda fountains. They'd make your ice creams. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so yeah. your husband grew up right next door. Right next door to that. How did the two of you meet, you and your husband? I was hitchhiking. You were hitchhiking? 
<laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> Our, my friends, Dorothy and Louise, and my sister Margaret and I, we wanted to go up to Rensselaerville. So... We just put out, our, we were talking 1960. Yeah. It wasn't dangerous like it is now. And how old were you? I uh, must have been, when we met him, 14 or 15. Yeah. And uh, this car come along, we put out our thumb, it had four boys in it, including my husband. So we all piled in, we're sitting on each other's laps. They took us up to Rensselaerville and let us out. And then I didn't see him for a long time. And then I met him at a square dance at Conklin Hall in Rensselaerville, because we loved the square dance. And from and there on out. now been married for 51 years, is that right? That's right, on Tuesday. So congratulations. Thanks. And tell us a little about your life as a mother and wife in the midst of all these activities. You well, must have a very supportive husband. I do. Yeah. He's terrific. Um, we, he was in the Navy. It was the Vietnam time. Mm -hmm. And uh, decided to go into the Navy and like a week later, he got his draft notice from the Army. So he went back to the Navy recruiter and said, what do I do with this? He said, throw it in the garbage. And I was like, oh, is that a good idea? <laughs> but he threw it in the garbage, and the, the, apparently the Navy contacted the Army and said, we got him. So we lived in Washington, D.C. for a year. And, uh, and then he was, uh, then his next, he, we lived just off base, and he worked in a gas station just up the street for extra money. And he met a guy while he was changing tires up there because down there they don't have snow tires, but they'll have chains that they, anyway, back in 1966 they did. They put the chains on the cars while there was snow and then they would take them back off. So the gas stations used to make a lot of money putting on, taking off chains for these people. And he met this captain and he said, listen, when you get your next duty station, if you would like to go to diesel school, because he changed oil and did all these things, I'll get you into diesel school. So Rich got his orders for Rota, Spain. So he went down and seen the guy, and he got a change to the diesel school back out in Illinois. His mom and dad had a fit. He said, are you crazy? You, you missed your chance to go to Spain. <laughs> but this schooling got him the job that he worked all his life on the railroad on diesel engines in so the end. So it launched his career. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was a smart move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he was on two ships. One was a USS Hickman County. It's a small LSD that runs up and down the rivers and supplies um, things to the troops. Mm -hmm. And my favorite story that he ever told on that is they were in this little town up, up in the river when they got attacked. So the Army guys were helping them unload the ship. And when they when they the bombs started falling, all the armor guys ran back to the base. The navy guys kind of like were like, "What do we do now?" So the captain of the ship said, "Get that jeep." They had a brand new jeep that they left sitting on the beach. They drove the the jeep on the ship, painted it navy gray, put their numbers on it because theirs had rusted out from the salt water, and they had pushed it overboard. <laughs> oh, so when, the next day, when the guys are coming back looking for their Jeep, they're like, did you see a Jeep? Jeep? No. You don't have any Jeeps on your ship? Oh, yeah, we got our Jeep right there, just that one. But you didn't see one sitting down here? Nope. And away they went. <laughs> That's not your usual war story. That's very... Requisitions. <laughs> yes, I guess so. Oh, That's what they get for leaving them there. Uh, so do you have... Now that you're on this pedestal as this woman who's been recognized, do you have any advice for women or particularly young women? Um, 
you know, finding their way in the world and trying to balance all the many things. I don't know how you've done it. You must not sleep at all. But, um, you know, any kind of words of wisdom to share on... To put, if you're going to do something, put your heart in it. But don't do it if you don't like it. You know, you want to do something you really feel positive about. I like doing this book because I learned about my ancestors, which led me into putting together this... Um, I have put together a... These, these are my... This is my family tree. Oh, my gosh. Now, in teeny tiny type, I think it's about nine point, we yeah. have, <clears throat> I don't know how many pages, 31 pages of just carefully written out with each... Uh, very indented to show the levels of family. My gosh. So, and what you... I'm trying to do is I'm adding to it little stories about each person because when you wow. get these family trees, you just get their names. You don't get a story. So how do you find out the stories? Where do they um, come from? Well, from books like this yeah, or from families, you know, you might hear, or it, maybe I can't go back real far and get a story. Um, like... If there's somebody that's been in the Civil War or something, I can put that story in there. Because my brother, Stephen, that got hit by the drunk driver, he's big into Civil War reenactments. And uh, so he does a lot of research on that. So we find a lot of that. Yeah. In fact, a lot of the graves that we're working on, he's putting them on findagrave.com so that people who are looking for history of their family can go and find where they're buried. Um, it's, a, it's a great site. So just glancing randomly at one, pe one person here, we have Donald Drucker Peck, and he, he had cerebral palsy, and his mother was told he would not live past his teens. He died at the age of 58 as Helen took such good care of him. I That's mean, right. that just yeah. tells you about someone. So do you have a favorite ancestor or um, story in all of these many pages, one that stands out for you as, as kind of important or exceptional or interesting? My dad is my favorite. Tell me, because I'd love to know, like here your brother who went through this terrible accident and he's helping people find their history through doing the graves. You must have had a family that really taught you a lot about caring for others. Just tell me a little about your dad and how you grew up the way you did. My dad, um, when he was 13, his mother died. She was, um, he was one of um, eight children that survived, and his mother ha was having twins and was in front of Albany uh, Medical Center and was hit by a taxi and died. And he had to, he went with my grandfather. I'm sorry, too. just back up. Your mother was giving birth when she was hit. My grandmother. Your grandmother. I'm sorry. Yeah, grandmother. Yeah. yeah. And she wow. died, and the babies died, and and she was buried with the babies. That same winter, my fa my grandfather's barn burnt down, and as he was running out to put out the fire, fell and broke his leg. So my father was brought up that he he was the oldest boy, and he would help the other children. And he was brought up to help other people. And when he was 16, World War II broke out, and he lied about his age and went into the Navy. And um, eventually married my mom. And my brother, uh, my oldest brother, uh, was born while he was in the Navy. He got the nickname Skipper because my mother used to dr dress him like a little Navy guy. <laughs> his little Navy suits. And so everybody always called him Skipper. And then uh, my mother said, never wish for something too hard because you might get it. Because she prayed that my brother would never have to go into the service. And he was deaf. And he never had to go in the service. 
So she always said, don't pray, pray for things too hard. You just might get it. Well, that's quite a lesson. Yeah. But now you said your brother went to a special school for he did. the deaf. He so. St. Mary's School for the Deaf in Buffalo and graduated from there and then um, went to California and worked for the railroad out there and did a lot of computer stuff and then um, moved back home and, uh, and he, he died of cancer. Um, but it sounds like 20. he had a full oh, life despite he, his death. He wasn't handicapped. He was, yeah, he was yeah, deaf, but yeah. he wasn't handicapped. Wow. Yeah. What a remarkable family. It, it, it's, they're a good family. Yeah. Now tell Nobody's us, rich, but they're rich.